I'm quite. I struggle. I, I struggle a little bit with um, Lagba Omer in terms of trying to figure out what the day is all about. And definitely, there's different ways of, of celebrating it. One thing is clear: the simple <coughs> understanding of Lagba Omer is it's. I think that to the Turites, that there was a day when the Talmudim of Rabbi Akiva stopped dying and therefore there's a cause of celebration. Over the course of time, it's also become associated with the passing of Shem Yochoi, and the reason why it would be caused for celebration, even though it was the day that he passed away, which is seemingly be caused for great sadness, it was because when he passed away, he revealed many, many secrets to his students, and therefore it was like some kind of a day of deep secret revelations were made, and therefore it has a very powerful uh, connotation. How do we, how do we, or how do we kind of develop some level of understanding, which is maybe appropriate from my perspective of Lag Boimer? So the whole period stretching from Pesach to Shvus is one of the points in time where the Kabbalistic tradition seems to become almost well-versed or well-described amongst even the average person. Most the nature, the nature of Kabbalah, which is the Jewish mystical teachings, is referred to as Sod. And Sod means secret. And one of the points which is blatantly, um, glaringly problematic is the nature of a secret is the fact that no one knows it. Once everyone knows a secret, it's no longer a secret. So the point of a secret is it remains hidden. A secret that tolls, is told loses its status of being a secret. The mystical works of Judaism seem to, even once they're already spoken about, retain their status of being a secret, meaning Kabbalah, all the multiple works that are published and read and studied are still described as Torah Hasod, the world of secrets. So I'd like to perhaps begin by discussing this and perhaps also briefly discuss the Jewish relationship towards engaging in mysticism and why the way the Rambam described it is once a person has been Mamale Kreisoi, once you've filled up your tummy with all the revealed Torah, then it would be appropriate to to go on to the hidden Torah and perhaps open up a discussion because many people are attracted to Jewish mysticism and many people are blown away by some of the ideas contained within it. And how do we how do we cope with that in the context of it's really something which is apparently meant to be for a much more mature audience and uh, and selected and, and, of course, dealing with this idea of secret. The way the Torah is described, in, there's a Hebrew acronym for it, it's called Paradise. Paradise means, literally it means an orchard. I never actually grasped the connection, but it also refers to a state of, uh, an orchard is also describing a mystical state of being, uh, which is talked about in 
many passages in the Talmud, people who entered into the Pardes. But apparently there's an etymological overlap with the English word paradise, which sounds very similar, and one could understand how those two concepts can become confused because paradise and pardes seems to be this state of deep spiritual revelation and mystical bliss. So, pardes! Pardes is an acronym. Pardes stands for pshat, remez, drush, soid. Those are the four Hebrew words. Pshat means the simple level of understanding. Remez means a hint, something deeper. Drush means the demand that the verse gives through some kind of Something, something the verse is written in a way which is there to make sure that you, it's demanding a different kind of explanation. And finally, the Samach stands for Sod, the secret. Now, there are, there's a misunderstanding of how these four levels of understanding the wisdom of the Torah interrelate, interrelate with one another. The misunderstanding is there are four alternative ways of, of approaching a given, let's say, for example, a verse in the five books of Moses, in the Chumash. So there's a verse, and you can say, well, on the Pshat level, so then it means that. On the Remez level, it means something there. On the Jush level, it means this. And on the Sod level, it means that. And there are four alternative ways of describing what the verse says in four different kinds of languages of communication. I would venture to say that is incorrect. And the fact that it's incorrect is also the hint why the mystical work is referred to as Sod. Because those four paradise alternative understandings of a given piece of Torah are not parallel understandings or competing explanations. They are exactly the same thing. They are exactly the same thing, which means Pshat, seen deeper, becomes Remes. Remes, seen deeper, becomes drush. And drush, seen even deeper, becomes sod. And the incredible difference that this makes to us as people who embody this spiritual tradition is when I understand that sod is not something new and different from pshat, it's just when I've delved into the depth of pshat, I will eventually arrive at sod, that means I have the capacity to even communicate a secret through the language of pshat. But the primal, primary, more the primary conveyance of the deeper side will be underneath the surface of the language. And when we think about it in these terms, it makes a perfect continuation of exactly the topic that we've been discussing until now, which is the relationship of the hidden and the revealed in my own personal world of Chochmah. And this is what it means. It means that a person is comprised of multiple layers. The most external layer we have is parallel to the layer of Pshat. It's the way that we are grasped without any study or um, delving or questioning, just the way that we show up and appear in our, I suppose, basic physical form. When my experience of life is limited to that material, physical engagement, it's almost as if, were you to dig deeper, 
in my experience of life and my identity, you'd go through and break through that level, but there would be nothing underneath that. Because the development of self requires work. And for me to deepen my understanding of the world, I need to think a little bit beyond the physical and discover the transcendent. So let's say, basic level. When I see... An ox. I see an ox. I see an ox. An ox is an ox. When I see a hole in the floor, I see a hole in the floor. When I see a person lighting a barbecue, I see a person lighting a barbecue. That's the level of chat. Just is that. And if someone goes and falls into the pit, I have liability if I dug it because I create an obstacle. If my ox goes out and goes on a goring rampage, I take responsibility because the ox belongs to, belongs to me and I didn't guard it sufficiently. If my barbecue is spark carried by the wind and ignites my neighbor's beautifully fashioned Swedish wooden home designed specifically for them by Sven, so then I have liability. <coughs> so, but when I extrapolate and I say, Okay, so if my ox goes on a marauding rampage and destroys someone else's property or person, I'm liable. What happens if I have an extremely, extremely cute blend between a French poodle and a Jack Russell Terrier? And I just met a person that actually has that particular blend, which means it's a, it's a kind of two dogs, which you wouldn't want them to marry each other, because the Jack Russell, he's like the fierce defender of all that's good and proper, and he will not be defeated. And the poodle just wants to sit in someone's lap and be kind of snuggled. So, I mean, you can imagine the, the identity crisis that that dog goes through. And as, as a result, this dog becomes particularly irritable and vicious and decides to go on a biting rampage and takes copious amounts of flesh out of multiple people's legs. Um, so what will you say? We're liable or exempt. On the one hand, it seems to be my property that's causing damage. On the other hand, but it's not an ox. Yes, but since we've penetrated underneath what an ox is, and we recognize that an ox is not a burly animal adorned by horns out there to be rampaging on a good day and landing up on a barbecue on another, but recognizing that an ox in the legal terms, in the Torah terms, is something that belongs to me, has a life force, and causes damage. And therefore, my multi, sorry, my French poodle Jack Russell mix is now an ox. Because the ox is just a manifestation, it's just a concretization of a concept. What is a concept? The concept is something that belongs to me that is a potential to cause damage if unguarded. That's going from the surface a bit deeper. But the truth is, while to be mystically informed, there's something else about an ox as well. So if you trace the Hebrew months, they have energies like the zodiac describes, and the Muzzle the constellation for goes Nissan ER is which is where we're at is the Taurus, the bull. 
The previous one, Nisan, was the lamb. The following one is Gemini, Toomim, the twins. So you kind of think, well, okay, what does that mean? So then you say, well, okay, well, the lamb is quite clear. The lamb was the Jews rescued from Egypt, representing this idea of a very domesticated herd mentality animal that needs to be shepherded because it doesn't really have its own volition. It doesn't really have that much strength. And is really very, very fallible and susceptible to damage and needs guidance. And they shepherded out. The Jews shepherded out. Then, in between, they graduate and they mature into becoming an ox, developing a really strong strength, a beast of burden, a beast that can really stand on its own two feet, the power to, to resist and to, to carry a burden and to bear a load. And that's the, the physical manifestation of this affirmation of self, which is fantastic because that's actually the progression from Pesach, which is this complete and total divinely inspired revelation where the Jewish people themselves do not have the sufficient spiritual preparation to facilitate such an open, powerful experience. It's just given to them as a gift. They're a little lamekin in that relationship. But during the period of Svira, they develop some guts and some power and some strength as they refine themselves day after day, week after week, until they become a bull, a powerful ox. And that's the next stage of development that occurs. And then Gemini, which is the twins, is obviously the synergy of these two disparate energies, one of absolute acknowledgement of my humility, my fallibility, my fragility, and the other is knowing the power that I possess. And putting those things together, that's a, that's a, a description from a person called Ravalevsky once, once, many years ago, I taught you. But it's, it's a perfect way to go from our next understanding of that ox, on the one hand, in the legal sense, is my property that causes damage, and therefore my French poodle blend Jack Russell Terrier can be an ox. Or even my armadillo. I'll go so far as to say, possibly, even my pet rabbit, rabbit called Snuffles, could all fall under that category because the principle, the underlying notion is not got to do with the format. But then there's a deeper thing of an ox does have a specific motive and symbol. And they could even go deeper. And therefore, my understanding, as it goes deeper and deeper and picks up different nuances of meaning, so my uh, perception of the world moves to a much more intrinsic, a much much more powerful layer of experience. So the mystical world is a secret, not because if you reveal it, it will no longer be a secret, but it will always be a secret. Because secret is just a synonym for an experience of life that is so far beneath the surface of sensory perception. And now, this is a tricky thing. So why wouldn't I learn mystical works right now? Why don't me start, open up a Zohar HaKadosh and start learning? The answer is, if I as a person function on the skin level of Pshat, and my reality is dominated by my sensory experiences, and my essential way of processing the world is based on the cause and effect witnessed by my empirical, logical mind, and for me, seen beneath the surface is not a thing. Were I to learn the mystical works, I would have to only perceive them in the tangible world. And therefore I would destroy the secret. 
Not because I would tell it, because I would move it from an internal place to an external place, and then it would become desecrated, ineffective, and wrong. Inappropriate. Because the secret doesn't operate on the level of chat. It can't. It operates way deep under the sea. And if I speak about it, so then I distort it and corrupt it. So therefore, the point of mystical preparation is synonymous to self-evolving depth of realization and the understanding of the world behind the world, behind the world, behind the world. And when I'm living the world, behind the world, behind the world, behind the world, that mystical knowledge speaks to my experience. When I'm living in the world, and not the world, behind the world, behind the world, that mystical knowledge is pure, theoretical, highfalutin stuff and has no meaning for me. So therefore, there's a reticence and reluctance for me to engage in deep mystical study because I feel that the receiver that I am cannot contain it. I'm too superficial still. I can't function at that level of depth. Rabbi Shibai Yuchoi, that like Be'oim celebrates this giving of this kind of Torah, had another component to him though. By him working on the level of absolute depth, he uncovered the beauty of our people because he recognized that even on the level of experience and material operations, a person may be evil, unevolved, crass. But when Rabbi, just like Rabbi Shimon saw the world in its deepest way, he was able to see people in their deepest way. And therefore, he was able to penetrate beneath the surface that they themselves weren't conscious of. And therefore, when he saw the people, he saw the great treasure buried underneath the surface in the form of the inviolable, uncorruptible, beautiful, eternal, expansive, transcendent soul. And when he saw that, well then, he included everyone. He included everyone. And that's why, ironically, the power of the day of Lagba Omer seems to attract people who are not sophisticated. And that's a paradox. On the one hand, the, the true experience is only available to a person who's really putting enormous effort to develop living life on those deepest, deepest levels. Yet on the other hand, Rabbi and his message seems to have mass appeal to even the most unrefined and the resolution to this paradox is because in terms of Shimbayachoy, his power to attract it because since he saw the deepest part of the world, he also saw the deepest part of the person. And in doing so, he gave every individual, regardless of where they were on the spiritual ladder of ascension, absolute and total hope. Because he could penetrate the depth of who we are. So Lagba Omer has that paradoxical component. On the one hand, it's so accessible because it's what we are on our deepest and most fundamental level. And on the other hand, it's so inaccessible because that knowledge of who we are is so far from our experience experience of being. The way forward, perhaps, is another point. Rabbi Shiba Yechoi even though he's famed for his authorship of 
the mystical work of Zohar Kodesh, was also a very involved and prolific teacher of the revealed Torah. Whenever you see in the Mishnah, the Tana Rebbe Shimon, that is always Rebbe Shimon by Yechoi. So he was a prolific writer of halachic knowledge. And his defining component was his almost unbounded love and devotion to the study of Torah. But not only in the mystical Torah, on the contrary, most of our interaction with him, if you're learning the Talmud, is through the revealed Torah. And therefore, for me, the message is quite clear that there's a pathway and that there's a series of levels in order to arrive at a deeper destination, one has to traverse the necessary crossing points to get there. And if you try to skip, so then you land up distorting and superficializing the very subtle, beautiful, nuanced depth of the Kabbalah. So therefore, in light of that, the message of Rabbi Omer would be, learn. You've got to learn. What do you have to learn? For us, you have to learn a great sugya, piece of Gemara, Gishmakotosis, Efshar Rashba, Shittamukabetsis. Ustam, the language of the Gemara, embracing it, enjoying it. There's a big yeshiva just down the road. Now there's huge, only over, I don't know, five, six, seven thousand students. And there was a leader of this yeshiva who passed away a few decades ago. His name, his name is, was Rebchaim Shmulevitz. And at the time, there was a strong movement of people to ascend to the tomb of Rebbe Shmai in the northern town in Israel of Meron. And he said, I don't know why you're going there. Being a champion of the study of Talmud, he said, you know, when people come and they flood the tomb of Rebbe Shmai on the day of his anniversary of his death on his yard site. So it's exceptionally crowded. Rebbe Shimon says to himself, this is really disruptive and distracting for my learning because he has an eternal existence and he comes to the Mira Shiva and that's where he learns. So why are you going there? Just stay where you are. And I'm assuming he didn't mean only the Mira. He's probably here with us right now. <laughs> Some form. So it's interesting to think that we should really, um, we should really use this day of Black Bar, man, to, to connect to the message that he gave us. And instead of spending it, I suppose... Um, lighting fires. And the reason why we light fires is because he brought so much light into the world. But of course the fire and light is only a marshal. It's an analogy. The real light that he brought was his depth of understanding, which can be captured in the Torah. So if you want to light the biggest bonfire ever, try light it in Tosis. Try light it in the Gemara. Try light it in your understanding of Chumash. Try light it in something that you learn. Because that's really where the light's going to be coming from. The light is only an analogy to creating a possibility of seeing things afresh, seeing things new. And you can stare into the smoky fire for a very long time, but all you'll see is flames. Whereas if you stare into a piece of wisdom, all of a sudden, the people around you may appear differently. The nature of cause and effect in the world may have a deeper component to it. And your life and your interactions and your connection to this incredibly vast and complex spiritual system 
that's articulated so in depth, in such depth by the Torah, will become visible. Visible. He saw the world in a very different way to the way we see it. When he saw the world, he was able to penetrate the surface, very much like some kind of spiritual x-ray machine with full technicolor, and underneath that, he saw the workings, and then the workings behind the workings, and the workings behind the workings. But that took him enormous amounts of hard work, just as in his, after he'd already become he was in a cave for 10 years, 12 years, 12 years, and did nothing with his son, Reb Laza, and did nothing but learn. So we should do that maybe for 12 hours. Thank you for your rapt attention, and we should all be um, enriched with the power to penetrate the surface, to see things in a, with greater depth and clarity, and to thereby embrace the true nature of mystical understanding which is the deepest level of our existence, our world, ourselves, and our children.